You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week, for reasons that will become clear, is Stephen Budd, my co-founder across three startups, former head of product at a cybersecurity startup and data product manager at London Stock Exchange. Stephen is a person who sees detail where I see unicorns and challenges my assumptions in a way that means we avoid costly mistakes. So welcome to the Agony Aunt Sofa, Stephen. Thank you very much indeed. Can I just clarify something though? Because I think this is actually my sofa as well, isn't it? Oh, um, yes. Not well, just that the, is uh... true. You do live okay. here. So, uh, yes, it is true that you do actually have a 50% stake in the Agony Aunt sofa. So, mm-hmm. uh, welcome okay. to it for your first episode. We've got two questions this week. The first is from a non-technical founder who asks, I'm building an app-based company, and although I really know the space and have a strong idea, I've been told I need to get a technical co-founder by some people a CTO by others, whereas I think maybe outsourcing is the way to go. Help, what should I do next? The second person asks, <laughs> anybody who's thinking this is you, it's not, this was a, a genuine question submitted by the form. I co-founded with friends and it isn't working. They don't work as hard as me, but resent that I am CEO. What can I do? <laughs> <laughs> So we all laugh at this point because, um, boy, does that one come up quite a lot of times. Perhaps we'll kick off with the first question and bring the second one in. A a non-technical person who's got a great idea for a tech company, something we did with our last business, and although we're both from different backgrounds, we start from that place. Would you perhaps kind of like to introduce your background and experience and perhaps how we approached our last tech company from the same place as the person asking the question? Sure, absolutely. So my background is in working with data products. I never intended to start out that way, but that's how it kind of evolved. Long, long ago, back in the day, I uh, was a product manager at the London Stock Exchange. And the Stock Exchange at that point in time, somebody argued, was effectively a software house with a sale of information, was its real lifeblood. And so knowing how to productize, package that data and respond to customer demands is where I got my first initiation into that. What I learned back then, which was the early 2000s, is probably hopelessly antiquated now. But what it did give me was the ability to look at lots of data and even from a non-mathematical background such as mine to be able to understand what it was saying to pick up the patterns and to make reasoned intelligent business cases. When we co-founded our first uh, major business together, um, effectively an analytics consultancy company, those kind of skills I, I found came in really, really useful as well. And Also, the ability to, how should I put this, flit from client to client, sector to sector, where you'd have no expertise, understanding that you needed to come up with a a so what was crucial in that as well, that we needed something at all points that said why, why this was relevant. That was the difference, perhaps, between when we founded a consultancy style business, Yep. where you, in a lot of ways, do the work or you give the advice. You can 
execute your plan with the skills that you have. Whereas when we sat down to do the next company, before, long before we started, I recognized that I wanted to build this hundred million dollar Silicon Valley style, gonna eat the planet, rule the world kind of high growth company. And one of the things that I recognized at the very beginning was that you and I, between us, did not have all the skills required to execute on that plan. Absolutely. And I spent some time with um, Dennis Mortison, who I've had in a previous episode, and got a lot of advice from him on how you mapped out that skills gap. Yeah. And we went into starting a tech company knowing that unlike our previous business, we didn't have every skill we needed to be able to apply that. What do you think we got right and what do you think we got wrong about the way we initially approached starting a tech company as non-technical founders? Okay, so the big thing that I think we got wrong, and this is the one of the big tips I would give anybody in this position, is to get a working knowledge of basic software development. And what I mean by that is not to understand whether you need to use Java or Angular or something like that. What I'm talking about is getting the basics of agile development. As I say, it's easy to grasp. It's not that easy. People have fights about it all the time. But get that in your head and and understand what that's going to drive and how that's going to map onto the people that are going to technically deliver. And the reason I stress that is because it will help you come up with a clearer idea more quickly, and it will help you manage your technical team far more efficiently. So in answer to the thing that I think we got wrong was not understanding just how to drive efficient development forward. And it was all a bit ad hoc. Mm. And I've seen it now done very well in practice. But from my perspective, I I was a little naive about that. And that came very much, as I say, when I referenced the stock exchange. That was years ago. You know, completely different approaches. I I was definitely naive about that too. I'd worked in a company where we developed software. I'd I'd been in the room while we'd built products, but we'd mostly built them for clients. So we had to build them for HP, which is a very different budgetary and time frame environment. Yes. Yeah. And I really super underestimated how much we didn't know. Yeah. So I thought yes. like I've spent ten years writing creative briefs. Yeah. I know how to brief somebody. I've written product brief, I've written creative brief. I know how to do that. Or oh. between us we know how to do that. And one of the things I look back on what we did at the beginning of our last one was like we didn't know what we needed technically. I mean, I had this really big vision and, and you had the um, incredible difficulty of turning my vision into an actual <laughs> reality, uh, which is always the tough job. I win the prizes. Are we going to get onto that work. later? Yeah, I'll, yeah we'll get that later. I'll give you a chance to make it like that. Um, but yeah, I had this vision. You were kind of like trying to shape that vision. Yet we were going out spending money with people without actually enough technical knowledge of what we needed. And I would completely agree with what you're saying about there. Because you, you mentioned Agile, but I would say even more broadly than that, understand the difference between front-end 
back end, you know, the user interface, the yeah. analytics, the database component, just at a super basic level so that you can know what to ask for. Because I really feel we went wrong with that. And I think one of the useful things in the course of the last business is I met the quality of people who now I can sense check with. Am I asking for the right thing? Absolutely. Uh, I would completely agree with that. So the way, one of the ways that I approach this kind of thing now, and I've done projects every now and again that, that for people that in this position is to really take a step back. And if you think about any business, you can kind of map out who are the main players in this and the, the flow of interactions between them. For example, if you are thinking about, let's, let's invent a, a product here. This is something that um, records what music you like. So it's got a front end because you've got a user in there who wants to record something. I mean, by which I mean, they're just, in this case, they're adding a title in or something like that. Let's keep it really simple. And then your question is, so where does this thing actually live? Which means that you've got a back end. And then you've got, how do I retrieve the data and that kind of thing without going into too many solutions. But you, you understand that there is this, this more complex interplay. I think the other thing, picking up on a, a previous point you made there as well, is really understanding the roles or the, the limits of some of the technical solutions. So I remember, and this is again one of our, our, our learnings or scars, is that when we were talking about front-end development, of course, that there was a big difference between a designer and somebody who'd actually damn well built the thing. Oh my God, that was a painful mistake. Uh, That was about a 15,000 pound mistake. Absolutely. And and I I, I always own my mistakes, but it just didn't occur to me when we briefed that out and I wrote the lovely brief and we had somebody in... I thought we were having a front end built. Yeah. You know, I really thought what I was getting for my fifteen thousand pounds was a functioning front end, yeah. not some beautiful visuals. And they were beautiful visuals, but we started just the wrong way around because we were a data driven product. Yes. You know, we should have built the back end, bummed it out into a Excel spreadsheet to show that the whole damn thing worked and yeah. made it pretty at the end. We started the wrong way around and we didn't understand what we were getting. And I, I still see that error made where people think they've actually got something functioning when what they've got is a kind of almost a functional demo front end. Yeah. It, it doesn't join up to anything. And, you know, that cost us a lot of money. It, but it also, I think, depends on what you're trying to achieve. And in some circumstances, that or the, the, the kind of example you were giving there is a, is a perfectly valid way of proving the product. So we're talking here, we're getting towards minimum viable product mm-hmm. kind of area. And something like that as a, as a set of wireframes or as, a, say, as, as you say, as, as Excel, has value in its own right. It's just your expectations. Yeah. And, and yeah. I've got a couple of actually real world examples of that. So I saw a product management talk by the founders of FanDuel mm-hmm. uh, a year or so back, yep. which was the fantasy gaming site. And they originally proved that concept with an Excel spreadsheet game. They'd tried a whole bunch of different stuff. And then they got this Excel spreadsheet where people paid, I can't remember, like $7. And they knew they had got a workable concept when people got in touch and said, can we play that Excel game again next week? 
And only then do they actually start any kind of front-end development. Yeah. And I was speaking with a founder, I'm starting to work with King's College London and the Accelerator there, and I was speaking to a founder actually on this topic, and she had been thinking about bringing in a technical co-founder, but we explored what she was able to do herself. Mm-hmm. And actually, she avoided going down that mistaken route that we went down about spending all of our money on the front end when we should have spent it on the back. But she sat and looked at what she could do in Canva yeah. and make a pretty workable front end to have a nice piece of airware, they call it, you know, that you that you show at demos and that you show at events while you're doing the important stuff at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just didn't understand enough about that at the very beginning. Yeah, and I think there's always a temptation that you're wary of, of airware, of, of vaporware. And so there's the temptation that you have to deliver something that's all singing, all dancing, because somebody's going to call you out. It's equivalent to building something you can drop on your foot. You know, yeah. it's here, it's real, it's does not it just... Does it exist? Yeah, does it exist? What have you actually built? Where are you with product development? Completely. It's, it was interesting, a few weeks back, um, road testing an idea. And people said, where is it? And said, well, it's in my head at the moment. Yeah. Can you give me some feedback? Because actually, I'd like to t- try this out before yeah. actually putting some serious money into it, if it's a tough oh, idea. absolutely. And I think that, especially as a first-time founder, you probably feel quite a lot of pressure to get on building something. Yeah. But I can tell you this time around, I'm just going to spend 90% of my time thinking about it and validating it. Yeah. 8% of my time building it really damn good product plan and 2% actually building. Otherwise, I mean, I don't know if you've experienced this when we've been working on different things, but otherwise you just get in this loop of never-ending perpetual product development where it just grows arms and legs. It never ends. People seek a perfection for something that isn't actually very important. Absolutely. So, and this is really where I think things like Agile start to come in. So Agile is a methodology. You're trying to answer the right questions really quickly about whether this is a product that the customer would buy. And you're trying to do that in as lean a way as possible, by which I mean you're not spending a huge amount of money on this whole process. The reason that I found it so useful is because it forces you to think very clearly and clinically, and that includes things like delivery time timescales. With Agile, you start to break down your work into much smaller chunks with with deliverables, and you align those deliverables to what it is that the customer wants. It sounds really obvious in some respects, but essentially it is trying to turn something that has the potential, as you say, for growing arms and legs into something that's a lot crisper, uh, a lot more focused, and actually delivering something of value to the customer and also to you in terms of information about whether this is something that is worth doing. And I think as the non-technical founder, that is the most valuable and important skill you bring to this. Don't beat yourself up that you couldn't code it. Yeah. If you can figure out what it is you're doing, who you're doing it for, yeah. why they care, what success needs to look like. Utterly. You've got, you've got four out of the five of the pieces 
The fifth piece is, okay, how are we actually going to deliver that? And yeah. even then, as the non-technical founder, you can do a lot of work in that area of like, well, what are they already using? What things do they like? What technology environment do they have? You know, are they using mobile first? Or, you know, you can take it nearly all the way as the non-technical founder to actually be building everything you need to understand about the business. Yeah. And then you actually have a really clear plan of what you need. Then it's almost like your core because yeah. you could find that having done all that, you do not need a technical co-founder. Sure. You're in a place where you can brief it. Yeah. To, you, you know, you can outsource a piece. Or you're in a place where you go, you know what, actually, this is an IP business. And then this is how we were in our, our last company. Yeah. This is you know, the product, the builds, the data environment, the algorithms. That is the business. Therefore, we have to start this. We have to create this yeah. environment where we're in control of that. Absolutely. I think that's an interesting point about the technical uh, capacity. One of the important things that I've discovered is that culture plays a huge role in, in this. To give you an example of what I mean by that, there's times when you can outsource and you'll be blindly given what you have asked for. And if you've asked for it badly, you'll get something back that's bad. Um, well, you'll get what you asked for, even if that was stupid. Absolutely. There are certain uh, forms of outsourcing, and it's a generalization, but I've noticed this mostly amongst uh, companies in, in Eastern Europe. They'll basically say, that's bullshit. Why are you asking for that? That's silly and, and kick back. And that's actually really, really valuable. And I think if you also have that culture within your own organization, it's deeply valuable as well. So it's possible to have the, how should I put this, supine development internally and externally, or it's possible to have a good active development, yeah. both internally and externally. And that's just a matter of, of culture. You want people that are going to kick back because as you say, you're about the what, not the how. Mm -hmm. all of the time. Now, there's ways of managing the how as well, because as you say, it does have the potential to, to uh, develop arms and legs. But that's if you can then align what you're trying to do with your, your vision for the product and what actually needs to be done, you can kind of keep that that under control. But there are, there are different types of, of development culture um, yeah. out there. And the ones that give you some resistance are amongst the, the best ones. So and to give you an example of that, in my Last role, one of the best experiences I had was I wrote a set of business requirements and I took it to the, the engineering team who, incidentally, if you have one, they need to be involved really, really early on in all of your discussions about new ideas. And they beat me up for it. Mm -hmm. it, was it was poorly written. I didn't see that as a failure. I saw that as a learning opportunity. And the next time I went back, I went back with something much better, much crisper, and actually much more logical and, and, a, and a better product was, was built off the back of it. So if you're getting kickback, try to, to take it on as, as being constructive, but also do watch out for the arms and legs because that's the negative side of things. Yeah, and I think the difference between when we did this last time and doing it now is the valuable contacts that you make over the years and yes. how you learn whose view you trust and whose you don't. Who is an informed critic? And who is just digging their heels in to yes. try to hide up the fact that they don't know what they're talking about. Absolutely. And, and you know, they're two different things. And I found that the good critic, the informed critic, if I went in to almost having 
started to solutionize mm-hmm. it, as I went in with an idea. They would really, you you know, you, you filled this role extremely well as well. That they would start to challenge my assumptions and call me out that I was starting to get into the how when we actually hadn't fully understood the who, what, and why yet. Completely. And yes. when this ran, um, the most successfully I ran this was towards the end of the last business. You were already working on something else at that mm-hmm. point, which is when I had one of those good critics in the team, him and my product manager grasped what I was trying to achieve and then said, now go away, let us think about the how. Let us think about how's the best way to do that. And they actually simplified it down an awful lot in a a really two, three-week time box thing and it had a clear end to it and we achieved an outcome. And, And I think that was the benefit of having gained a trusted te- technical advisor. I, for the person that asked the first question, I, I definitely wouldn't be worrying about a CTO anywhere near the beginning of this process. I think the CTO role is greatly misunderstood what that person does in an organization. And I think you are really at that beginning team looking at either a technical co-founder as in they can technically build stuff, a product co-founder in that they actually know product and product management, or you're looking at trying to learn as much of that as you can and outsourcing preferably with somebody who's an informed guide on A, have you got your brief right? And B is what's coming back. Yeah. Within the realms of truth rather than delusional bullshit. Completely. So just to explore a few points in there, as a, as a founder, co-founder, whatever, you are effectively, to my mind, you are the, the founding product manager as well. That's, so we were at an event a little while ago and there were a few startup companies asking for some services. And I, I thought it was probably inappropriate for them to be having those kind of services because I thought actually you, you need to get your hands dirty at this point yeah. this is this is the, yeah. the, the, the crucible of pain where you actually <laughs> yeah. learn it there was a few people asking us oh wow yeah could you just execute our product for us <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, your job as the founder uh, com- com- <laughs> to figure out how you're gonna solve this whole what is my product and how am I gonna do it then? absolutely you know and that's that's <laughs> but I can you- understand why they ask because product is hard very much so you also reminded me there, there is a, a famous article um, about good product manager, bad product manager, uh, Horowitz, I think, in which you have this famous line that a product manager is the CEO of the product. Debatable, the CEO is a CEO. But, you know, what it's what that phrase says to me is that you've got somebody who needs to step up and take responsibility in all of the mature aspects of that. And when I, when I mean mature, I think this isn't just about technical engineering or anything. This is about how does this go to market? How do we market it? All of that, that kind of thing. Drawing on from that point a little bit more, I think that each and every one of us, whatever our actual designated role, should try and act as the CEO of that that role. So if you are, for example, the head of, of a mailing room, act as though you are the CEO of that mailing room, by which I mean, look for the opportunities. Don't just sit there and accept what's going on. Look for 
how things can be improved and to, to, to be able to say, hey, this isn't working. And I appreciate in all, not in all organisations will that be possible. But it has to happen in a startup, frankly, because there's so few of you. If you're not taking responsibility, if you're not being proactive, if you're not being accountable and you're not kind of communicating and taking leadership for your own little piece in something yeah. tiny, how the hell is it going to work when it's bigger? It's not going to work. And just to tie this all together, the reason I really make that point is to come back to the role of the CTO, the technical, a person that you bring in, whatever they look like. Your good ones will always act like a like the CEO of their knowledge area. They're going to be smarter than you, but they should be able to think about what they're doing maturely to be able to give constructive suggestions as opposed to, no, can't do that, or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And to be able to communicate all of these, these clearly with you. And I appreciate that doesn't happen all of the time, but it's the kind of thing to look out for how much initiative this person shows and when you were referring just then to some of your the more the successful hires this um the, i know the two that you're talking about i'd say they were both ceos of their area yeah they were fantastic absolutely and, and they're people that i would under the right circumstances form a company with yes in. and this is really interesting because i think this brings us very nicely onto the second question which is I co-founded with friends and it isn't working. They don't want to work as hard as me, but they resent I am CEO. Uh, what can I do? Because in practicality terms, it is so much easier and more common to form a company, a startup with people that you know yep. versus that you people you don't know. Yes. The most common configurations are classmates forced together, Yep. Occasionally that works, mostly it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Friends who choose to come together mm-hmm. and spouses, partners, which is actually much hated by investors yep. for all sorts of reasons. But in my experience, when it works, it really, really, really works. Yep. Um, because you kind of get 140 hours for the price of 70. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah, that could be a good and bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It can be a good and bad thing, um, but you know the fact we were about to do it for the third time means it can't be that bad. In yeah, that case. yeah. It's probably worth saying that less common, but often more successful, is forming with people that you don't know socially. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, yeah. kind of what we did in the last business. I mean, initially, um, because we brought in two co-founders, and all of that didn't work out, which we can come back to. Yeah. A bit. We found them by reaching out through our professional network and we were given introductions, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting to think back on that, that really. And I guess it comes back to being hooked in, to, as you, you suggest, to those, those networks because you've got, there's got to be a level of trust somewhere. There's got to be a level of pre-vetting, I guess. This is a, a person with whom you should be speaking and you trust the person that is making that introduction. Absolutely. And in, in our case, that was completely true. I mean, somebody that we knew we'd, we'd worked with, but we, we knew them professionally, but we'd been to their home and actually also met them socially. Yes. Made an introduction from their professional network, which we took seriously because we trusted them. Interestingly, I mean, it, it didn't work out because in the end, they weren't able to commit the time, yeah. which is exactly the issue that you get with friends. Yeah. But I have seen it work. For example, 
I was recommended to advertise work in startups, and that's where I came across Johan, who we're about to work with. Yes. Um, as a, as a technical complementer to us. And I got a recommendation from Amy at Good Loops, and she had advertised on that and found Daniel, who you know, an amazing yes. data tech co-founder. Yeah. So I took a leaf out of her book on that, and I advertised, and I got some great people. Yeah. Um, ironically, I then changed my mind about the idea. But what I think was super interesting about the person we found, and while I feel good about that, is that when I went back to them and said, oh, my plan has changed, changed the idea, he just completely took that in his stride and said, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and we had, a, we had a three-way conversation where we kept on talking about that. Yes. And I felt very confident he knew what he was getting into in the way that he reacted to me going, ah, oh, yeah, uh, that plan isn't yes. the plan anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that while we are talking about co-founders here as well, I, I, it also I'm also reminded about how some of our most successful hires were effectively sourced exactly the same way as well. And I'm sure you, you know which one we're thinking of, but was introduced to us by a friend of yours through mm. a professional association uh, was pivotal in that business. Absolutely. And I think that's the interesting thing where you draw the line between is this a co-founder or employee? And I actually yes. talked about that with Kirsty in the last yeah. episode. I think there's a lot of pressure put on to people to go find a co-founder. In fact, like just today through the blog, I got another question about I've been told to find a co-founder. Where do I start? This comes up all the time. Yes. And it's almost like this assumption that on day one, you have to find this magical person. And it is like, it's more than getting married. I mean, this is... This is the most intense thing. And I think it's like hugely unrealistic to think that on day one, you're just going to find this person out of thin air. You can bring people in later, either yeah. as employees, and you can make the decision, you know what, I'm going to be a single founder, but I'm going to build a really, really strong advisory board and employee network very, very early. Yeah. Or you can say, I need this type of co-founder. And when I find the right person... I yep. will bring them on stream. And you might find them via an incubator, you know, meetups, advertising like I did, working startups in the UK. I think there's a site called Co-Founder Dating in, yes. the, U yeah. in the US that more or less does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Um, but that whole thing of through your professional network. Um, or indeed, by almost doing your own little mini hackathon or your own mini Bring on an idea where yeah. um, Dennis Mortison always recommends this, where you get some people in a hotel room. I did it with an idea that I ended up dismissing before we started the last one, where you bring a whole bunch of people around the table, you stress test your idea for a day yeah. or two. You, in, a, in, a, in a romantic relationship, you don't get married on day one. You know, you do test each other out. You go courting or whatever your uh, your idea yeah. of the of these things are. And in some cases, of course, um, you'll have even things like prenuptial agreements when you do start getting uh, serious and the stakes are high. And I know that it is also recommended that when that in some cases with co-founders, um, you have prenuptial agreements mm. that you are not. This isn't you committed for the next 60 years. <laughs> yeah, and we'll actually, I think we should come back to that because I have yeah. quite strong thoughts on that. But friends isn't the only option. Certainly not. People really. that you know isn't the only option, but it is the most common option and that's kind of where things often start to go wrong. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Getting some diversity of thought isn't a bad idea. But this friends falling apart and the 
they don't work as hard as I do or they resent me as CEO or the flip side of that is they think they're really important and they get all the attention because they're CEO and nobody thinks that I'm very important and that's annoying. And this is how lots and lots of startups fall apart. So I'll have a few thoughts about that. I don't know if I've got an exact answer, but perhaps we this is something that we can perhaps tease through uh, together. My thoughts are initially that when you are establishing this company, however close your relationship, you are business partners. You're not friends, you're business partners. And that's a different thing altogether. Absolutely. You need to be putting, I wouldn't say self-interest first, because obviously there needs to be a bond of trust and you know, you're doing this because you all want to get something out of it. But you have to accept the possibility, the very real possibility, for example, that if we set up a company, as we're going to do again, and you will probably be CEO, that you might need to sack me. Mm-hmm. That comes with the territory. Yep. Um, and you need to be cold and ruthless about that. Obviously, if that happens, I'll cry and be a bit bitter and probably go down the pub for a bit. But, you know. Um, it's so I'm using that as an, an extreme example, but that's that's the mentality that you you have to have. I think you need to have a very honest, hard discussion at the very very beginning around something that was taught to me as the the four D's, which is decisions, death, divorce, and uh, dissolution. Uh, by which I mean sale around this company, uh, and this obviously affects equity stakes mm-hmm. as well. Let's assume that you've done some that we set up a company and we do something daft. Um, it's an equal split. How are decisions actually made if we disagree with each other? Yeah, and companies have you no. Know, um, Zipcar is the famous one for that, where the two yes. founders set it up fifty-fifty. Um, one felt like they did all the work. The other one says, "Well, you know, I always told you I was only able to do this much work." Yeah, and it ended up in court, and they got that person got fifty percent of that company. Uh, it was like. A famous legal mess. They yes. hadn't. They hadn't thought about that stuff at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, even in our first company, I remember we sat down in our lawyer's office as a couple and thrashed out our shareholder agreement yep. to tackle exactly these things. And I think yes. that's why when we went into our second business and we brought in two co-founders that didn't quite work out. Yeah. Because we've done that with shareholder agreements with clear terms, we all were able to walk away. With the company still intact, relationships still intact, you know, in in a as positive as it can be kind of way to go. Okay, we right team two point here, founding team yes. two Yeah, and it's it, it's funny. I mean, this sounds really obvious, but I remember with our last company, our stakes were were very different from each other. I'm, I'm obviously. You know, you, you had a majority stake. I was, you know, it's very different from that. And I was discussing this when I was doing the uh, the, the business studies uh, thing over at, at Babson. And when I mentioned this, somebody said, we don't want to know about your marital problems, as though the fact was that I got somehow beaten down from this. I saw it as actually what I, I had perfectly fair. And That's actually in terms of the responsibility. Babson or MIT. Yeah. MIT, which is where I went. They would have been like, yay, you guys know how to structure a share cap, to, which was the point. To be very fair to Babson, it wasn't anybody from Babson that was saying that. So I'm afraid we're still, it's still a score draw uh, between two mighty Massachusetts institutions. So I'll I'll kick back on that Your point is really, really important. The co-founding team is never 
an equal split of the pie. It no. shouldn't be. And there is virtually no scenario on the planet where that makes sense, particularly for a business that's going to go out and raise money. Yeah. Um, and the key things that I think you have to think about, absolutely, those four Ds, critical. It's death and divorce, but um, I would bundle up in death and divorce is also kind of like inactivity or failure to deliver. Because in your first founding team, especially when you do it for the first time, there'll be a ton of people who love the idea of a startup who have literally no idea what that involves. Yep. And once they become involved, they realize it is more risk than they're prepared to take, is more time than they are able to commit. Yeah. And they see perhaps you as the CEO getting all the praise, which is, you know, you also get all the risk and you also the one that like gets hung out to dry at the end. So, you know, having lived through all sides of that, it's it, it, there are trade-offs for all involved. But it, it, it's never an even split of the pie. And um, I think perhaps sometimes inexperienced co-founders coming into that expect they should be getting a third or a quarter of this and feel hard done by when they aren't. And a nice, clear agreement that spells out what you are expected to do and what the consequences of not doing it are. So we set up our last one on options, as far as I recall, which was that if you work with us for X amount of time and you deliver this amount of stuff, you will get an option for this. Um, I was exploring a company, it didn't go ahead, but before we iterated and came to this last version, where I thought, actually, I'm I'm prepared to split the share cap on day day one, but I'm going to do that in a very flexible way, which means that if any of these Ds apply and if the non-delivery D also applies, this means that you're going to have to give up X amount of these shares. So vesting terms, time-linked, outcome-linked, and I got everybody thinking about it on day one and they were all like this is this is super formal for something that doesn't exist yet but it made sense yeah ironically we're going into this lot this one and we haven't done this process yet no we've been we've brought in a technical collaborator and it doesn't yet i don't think we're far enough yet to even know that we've got a company or a co-founding team. Yep. So we haven't, with all of us, got to the point yet where we sit down and even have that conversation, but we're all experienced enough to know and have in writing, the conversation is going to come and yes. it will be fair. Absolutely. It's not going to be an even split. And we'll see how this super early testing phase works out before we actually even define that. Yeah. So... Though you mentioned the thing a moment ago about some people feeling resentful about the CEO having the, the limelight and everything like that. Some of the things I think we got right. Sometimes as a founder, you need, well, I, I think you should park your ego. That's easier said than done for some people. And the consequence of that is to realize what's the right shape for this team. Mm-hmm. So clearer terms this coming business and so forth. We sit here on the sofa. I think uh, if our, if your listeners were asked who's the more extrovert amongst us, they wouldn't have difficulty um, answering that. You know, I'm, I'm one of life's more natural introverts. I'm contemplative. I'll uh, look at problems and that that kind of thing in a, in a deeper kind of way. And I don't know that the skills that I have there are more naturally ones for a CEO where you are 
for example, having to raise investment, you needed to go out, you needed to do the rah, 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 and all, mm. all that kind You're of thing. You're always selling. But that's not to say there's not a, a role yep. for somebody like that, actually a very important role, which you, you have alluded to. So it's it's being aware of, of also of how how these people do do interact and how they, they come together to, to create that, that harmonious whole. And you sometimes have to accept, for example, I'm not going to be CEO. We see we see this all the time. Um, you're not going to be a CEO, but you're going to be a damn good head of research. Yeah. Um, you're going to be a damn good head of data science. And actually, this is really, really what I need at the moment. And without that, I can't deliver anything. I was really inspired last week at uh, EIE, which is a big um, tech show that we were at, when I found it was speaking to me about how does he go about finding a CEO for his company, yeah. because he's an inventor, really, and he wants to bring in a CEO. And I was like, that's so refreshing. It's so rare to hear that, it's isn't so it? It's so rare, because often you find the founding team out of their depth, not actually interested in running the business, but not prepared to bring anybody in who will run the business. Yeah. Um, I've certainly encountered that. Last week's episode, Kirsty was talking about how you will get it wrong. You'll get it wrong with hiring. Yeah. Um, and you'll probably get it wrong with your co-founding team too. Yep. You just will, even with the best intention, even with the most experience. And that's why it is super, super important that you are have a, you have a business relationship, even sure. if you're friends. You know, the friendship might not survive depending on how it's all been set up. But yeah. even if you are friends, it's a business relationship. It needs to be associated with business documentation, formal agreements that you understand and commit into. Yeah. Because without that, you can't end it when you need to. And yeah. if it isn't working, you have to end it for everybody's sake because otherwise you kill the company. If those documentations, those agreements and the professionalism isn't there, generally the only way to unpick a co-founder mess is to break the company up and start all over again. Yeah. And that happens quite a lot, yes. but it's not desirable because it can be an expensive, demoralizing legal mess yeah. at the very start of the process when you really need your most optimism and energy to have a hope in hell of getting anywhere. Yeah. Um, so I think for the person asking, what can I do? Let's give them the benefit of doubt and assume they are not the problem. Yep. Um, and they might be, of course. Yep. And if they are, it's going to, you know, this is going to keep happening. Uh, and they're going to run through the number of people who are willing to co-found with them. But let's assume they're actually not the problem. Yeah. Um, they have to tackle it head on. They have to have it, have to handle it professionally, have a conversation with that person have a clear, I love the whole, um, I have said and you have agreed that process of conversation, which you can then summarize in the letter afterwards. And you, you do need to do that. Agreed. To, to bring the whole thing to a professional end. Yeah. Move on, have both parties sign acceptance that this is the end of the road and carry on because otherwise your company is at risk down the line especially if you're raising money and doing due diligence worse still if you're like insanely successful and something pops back out of the woodwork yeah from the beginning completely yes yeah no i, I would uh, uh agree with all of those points it's and it's a it's a tough thing to do to have that kind, kind of conversation with somebody who is your friend your spouse or or you know or, or, or whatever but that's part of the deal. I think if you want to get into this and you have serious ambitions for your company, 
this is the territory in which you're you're, you're playing. It's it's not it's not particularly nice, but it has to be done. And I think on that note, it's a very nice uh, place to wrap this conversation up. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Stephen Budd and Vicky Brock, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Aunts. As ever, you can subscribe or submit your question at vickybrock.com slash podcast.